Revelation 2, remembering this is God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 2, page 1234, this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. All of us, I'm sure, in one way or another, have, have some experience of being assessed. Maybe we remember what it was like to get those school reports home with the teacher's comments on them. Maybe we are teachers and we have to go through that dreaded inspection every now and again so that we know how it feels for the pupils all the time. Um, Maybe we remember going to the doctor for that checkup and and, and we we have the, well, this is good, but we're going to have to have a look at this sort of response. You've been at the dentist and they do that awful assessment where they go through and go, Top left four, sound. Top left three, sound. And then he goes, oh dear, and starts scraping. Uh, That's not good, is it? We, We know what it is to receive praise and criticism. What would it be like if our church was to be assessed? Congregation, denomination. And not just by, you know, another church, as it were, or by a special commission or a presbytery, but by the Lord Jesus himself. And that's really what's sort of happening here for these next chapters. These particular historical churches now in Turkey are being assessed by the Lord. But, but you remember what we said last week, if you were here last week, these are real historical churches, but they are also representative churches. They're, they're representative of the church in every age. Now, not all Christians think that. There are some Christians who who thought that that these churches represent particular stages in history. So for the first hundred years, we were sort of living under the church of Ephesus, as it were. And then we moved on, and and the particular challenges that the church faced were represented by Smyrna and so on. That's not a a view that's particularly reliable, I think. Much, much better to to take it as this sevenfold church, seven representing completeness, to say, here is the the church through all the ages, and here are some of the challenges they face. The the challenges that were faced in the first century are going to be very, very similar to the challenges that we face uh, today. They will have different names, but the same sort of spirit. And in every generation, the uh, Christians must avoid the errors that we read off here. They must strive for the things that the churches are commended for. 
And so, as we, we read what Christ thinks of the church, we need to be saying, well, uh, the things that He commends, we've got to strive for and, 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 and run after. The things that He rebukes these churches over, we've got to check and say, are we in danger of running into this, or is this present uh, within us? So, with that in mind, let's say a word about Ephesus. Uh, Ephesians uh, is the, 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 the letter to Ephesus, and of course, it tells us about a, a thriving church. How did that church get there? Well, Ephesus is the first place that you would come to if you were leaving the Isle of Patmos, and uh, there it is on the map, and you were going to go uh, to, uh, to take this letter around the sort of the loop of these uh, churches. And Ephesus was the first of those places. It was a thriving port. Um, 250,000 people lived there around this time. It had a major amphitheater, sat 25,000 people. If you go to Ephesus today, you can visit those ruins. I think uh, I've done uh, one or two of these sorts of things, and for me, some of the most uh, impactful historical things anywhere that I've seen uh, in the Middle East, better than I think some of the things in the Holy Land, as it were. Uh, really quite tremendous uh, historical site. And, and it was the convergence of, of some of the re region's major trade routes, so there was a constant coming and going of people and goods, it had all the usual Roman religions with emperor worship and so on, but it had a, a, a major temple there, the, the temple of Diana or Artemis, and her temple was on the edge of the city, very little of it left now, but size of several football pitches and was one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was, it was an incredible spot, pillars overlaid with gold and jewels and so on. Paul visited Ephesus very uh, briefly on his second missionary journey. He realized it was a strategic place, and on his third missionary journey, he visited there and stayed there for two or maybe even three years, teaching the people, giving lectures, uh, going from house to house. And eventually, we read in Acts chapter 19, you can look this up for yourself, uh, eventually the, uh, there was a, a growing number of people becoming Christians, and uh, it started to impact the local idol industry. The silversmiths began to realize that people weren't buying their idols because they'd turned from idols to worship the living and true God. And there's nothing that quite gets the back up against people, of, against Christians, is when their businesses are hit. And so, they organized a riot, as you do, and uh, Paul had to leave the area. But the church had taken hold, and it grew. It became strong and vibrant. And whenever you read that letter to Ephesians, you get the impression of a church that's really solid or a church that's really going places. So that was 30 or 40 years before this. And now we see what Christ thinks of the church. Now, as we look at all of these letters, they have a similar sort of format. Christ introduces himself. And you notice that every time he does that, he picks up something from the first vision. He picks up one of the characteristics that he's described by in the first vision. And he gives his diagnosis, positive, negative usually. He outlines the comfort and commands that flow from what he's saying is going on. And then he tells the church to take heed, and he promises blessing to him who overcomes. That's one of the themes, remember we said last week? One of the themes is, is look, there, there are great challenges to following Jesus. Are you going to be an overcomer? Are you going to overcome those challenges with his strength? Are you going to trust him 
no matter what happens. Now, you see that the, the letter is addressed to the angel of the church. Some have thought that that's a reference to the leader of the church, but, but usually in Revelation, angel means angel, and so it's better to think of some sort of heavenly representative. Remember, this is a highly figurative uh, letter, and uh, some sort of heavenly representative, maybe even a sort of a guardian angel for the church. And one of the things that we're going to see about this book is that it tells us that heaven is very involved in the affairs of earth. Good to realize that. Heaven's much more interested in earth than earth is in heaven. And we see that here. Well, there's commendation and there's rebuke. So what does Jesus command, first of all, in his church? Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work. Church at Ephesus was busy, it was active. It wasn't a sleepy little fellowship where nothing happened. They were working hard, there was lots going on. John Stott says this, one may imagine that its members were fully entertaining the lonely, nursing the sick, teaching the young, visiting the elderly. No doubt some gave hours of their time to making and mending for the church. Maybe others spent their leisure hours writing or cooking, cleaning or organizing. The church of Ephesus was a beehive of industry. Their toil was famous. You can imagine just how busy their calendar was. And, and Jesus commends this. There should be, in other words, an energy about a church that should draw people to it and lead people to commit themselves to it. They should find something in the life of the church that, that says, I'm going to leave the things that might otherwise occupy me and throw myself into this. That's a good thing. Jesus commends it here. You see then also, Jesus speaks of the church's perseverance. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And in verse 3, he says, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. We've mentioned the religious context of Ephesus, uh, emperor worship, worship of Diana. And when we read of, of Paul's time there in Acts, we find that many of those who became believers had been involved in the occult and, and as part of their breaking with the past, they came and they piled all their uh, sort of occultish scrolls and books and, and, and paraphernalia, uh, and they burnt it in, in one of the squares. And, and it tells us that it was worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. And, and in Paul's time there, he, he faced lots of opposition from this difficult religious climate. And that was 30 or 40 years ago, but obviously the hostility to Christians remained, and it was not easy for them. Some of them were being snubbed, no doubt, by their neighbors. Some were probably losing business. Some found it hard to shop because there were places that wouldn't serve them. And yet it seemed that they just accepted that this was their lot. They knew that to come to Christ's side was to come to the one whom the world hates and that they would have to share in that rejection. It's one of the things that we really need to embrace today. That's true for many of our brothers and sisters across the world. They know that to step onto Christ's side is to step into hardship. And many of us did not grow up whenever that was the case. But it probably will be the case from here on. Jesus is hated and we do not grow weary as we find 
that we have trouble. Jesus said that you will have trouble in this world and take heart, I have overcome the world. And he calls us now to overcome with him. You see that, that he commends their hard work, their perseverance. He commends also their, their orthodoxy. There's a, a word that's useful to know the meaning of. To be orthodox means to be sound in the faith, to believe the right things. It's the opposite to heterodox. To be orthodox is to believe the right things. And, and verse 2 says that, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Later on, verse 6, Jesus refers to them as the, uh, the Nicolaitans or the Nicolaitans. Uh, verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, as we go through this book, we're going to find that, that Satan wields a whole load of weapons against the church. He can't get at Jesus, so he gets at his people. And, and he, he brings out a load of weapons against God's people. From the outside, he applies pressure through persecution. And from the inside, he tries to tear the church apart through false teaching and also through immorality. Those two things often tie together. Other places we see that he uses division and, and so on. But here particularly, it's false teaching and immorality. And false teaching was something that the Ephesians had come across and they had dealt with well. These people who claimed to be apostles, sent ones, maybe they were the same people as the Nicolaitans. We don't really know exactly who they were. They, they appear again in Pergamum. But it seems that they were trying to lead people away from obedience to Christ. It's likely that they were a sort of a, a licentious bunch. They were a, <clears throat> a bunch that ended up sort of approving of immorality. They were sort of saying, well, now we know that <clears throat> because of grace and because Jesus loves us, we can live whatever way we like. Maybe saying some of those things that, you know, the Greeks would have said, well, the, the body doesn't really matter. It's just the spirit that matters. And so what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter at all. I sort of hinted at it earlier on. There is nothing new under the sun when it comes to the challenges that the church faces. You think of some of the things that are said today. Jesus loves me just the way I am. So long as you're loving, it's okay. Jesus wouldn't condemn anyone. How did they deal with this? Well, <clears throat> what we see that they did with the claim for apostleship was they tested their claims. In other words, they, they listened to what they had to say, and they measured it against something, against the writings and the teachings of the apostles. And when they found that it didn't measure up with the writings and the teachings of the apostles, then they had nothing to do with it. They, they didn't allow themselves to be deceived by what was false. Now, Paul had warned them. This was a church that was well warned on these things. Paul had, had warned them before on this. He, he had met with the elders at the, on the beach at Miletus at one stage in Acts chapter 20, it is. And he said this to them, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in and among you and not spare the flock, even from among your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away the disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night by, with tears. So here was a church, you see, that had, had, had heard Paul, the leadership had heard Paul say, look, 
To be a Christian is to fight against error. Be on your guard. There will be those who will take you away from the truth. And 40 years later, they, they had done this. They'd been careful about the truth. Now, and again, that comes as a, a word to us today, doesn't it? What do we do with the claims that there are around us? So many claims around us now for truth, isn't there? Especially with regard to the moral revolution. We take them to the Scriptures, and we see what is it that God says. It, it's, it's really easy to look at the, the battles that are going on within what we would call the wider church today and wonder what on earth is happening? What is this all about? And, and at root, I, I want to suggest to you, friends, that the, the, the issue is really simple. It is one of authority. How do we decide what is right and wrong? Is it a question of our collective wisdom? If it is, we're, we're finished. It's going to lead us away from Christ. Or are we going to do what the Bible says because that is our final authority? I remember uh, I've told this story before several years ago at the, the beginning of the Church of Scotland debate about uh, the acceptability of homosexual clergy. I remember watching one of the debates on the, on the live stream, and one of the, the leaders within the Church of Scotland stood up and said, you know, why are we talking about the Bible and what the Bible says? We know better than the Bible now. Now, you see, that's, that's simply a question of authority. Is it, is it we who say what is right? Or do we bring all of the claims of the world to the bar of Scripture to have God say what is right? And, and all of this, as all of this moves forward, I, I believe that, that churches and, and denominations are going to fall out on either side of this debate, not because they are loving or intolerant, but because they either hold that the Bible is their authority or they don't. It's interesting that here Jesus commends this church for two things that you will often hear the church criticized for today. Verse 2, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Here was a church that was intolerant. And verse 6, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Here was a church that was full of haters. Intolerant and hating. Intolerant of evil men hating immoral practice. And that's just what the church is accused of today. It was what the Ephesians were, and Jesus said to them, well done. I'm intolerant of evil men. I hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. If you are not prepared to be intolerant about some things and hate some things, you will never be like Jesus. Maybe that's a surprise to some of us. Some of us need to work on intolerance and hatred of the, the wrong things that we would be more like Jesus. A spirit that just says anything goes, doesn't matter, is not godly. So there's a commendation of their hard work, of their endurance, of their orthodoxy. But that's not all. There's a rebuke too, you see, verse 4. Yet I hold this 
against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, this can be taken in two ways. Some understand this to be referring to their love of Jesus himself. So, so in other words, here's the picture. They are busy as a church. They have a commitment to the truth. But under all of that, their hearts have become cold. Now, I'm sure that we know that that can happen. We can go through the motions with, without the, the corresponding heart love of the Lord. God says that of his people in Jeremiah. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. And he's saying it's not like that anymore. And there's a danger, no doubt, of that uh, for all of us. But, but that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. Uh, this seems to be referring for the other sort of love, and that is the love for one another. Now, undoubtedly, those two things are linked. But, but their love for one another, it's backed up by the other reference to love in this chapter in, in Thyatira, which is linked to service. And, and so it's serving, loving people, loving one another by serving one another. So the idea is that love shows itself in that way. So in other words, here's the problem. Here's a church where the theology is orthodox, the calendar is full, the people are determined to be faithful, but as the pressure has mounted, they've sort of turned on each other a little bit. And they're not loving one another the way that they should. Maybe they've got a little bit suspicious of one another, a bit hard on one another irritate it. It's a common issue within the New Testament church, isn't it? The Bible often has to address our love for one another. And maybe it's also referring to the fact that they're then not loving people outside of the church as they should, so that they're, they're, they're not witnessing as they should. That's sort of backed up by the fact that Jesus is the one pictured as walking amongst the lampstand, tending to the witness of the church, the shining of the church. Now, you see, this duo of, of love and truth is what we are called to. And, and let's not be wrong here. It, this is not Jesus saying, do you know what, guys, you're a little bit hot on the truth. Just dial that down a bit so that the, the love can shine forth a bit more. Not at all. 100% truth, but turn up the love. That's the issue. It's not half truth and half love. It's, it's all truth and all love. There's a word for us, isn't it? Do we ever find our love for other people waning? Each other? Those outside the church? Happy to keep people out of our lives? Happy to, to bear grudges and not really deal with them? Happy not to have people irritate us? Happy to cut some people up with our words? happy to bother very little about our lost neighbors. What does Jesus say to a church like that? He doesn't treat it as a little thing. Look at verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and, did, and do the things you did at first. So, so this, Jesus is not saying, you're mostly there, guys. You're mostly there. Just wee bit more of this. This is so serious that as we'll see, the whole future of the church is at stake. Repent, he says, and go back to loving and serving other people because the future of the fellowship is at stake. If you do not repent, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If they carry on as they are, Jesus will judge their church 
and remove its lampstand and its witness will go. And I must say, until this point, I thought to myself, that's a reference to the fact that the church closes its doors, that it's finished, it just wraps up. But it may be the case that Jesus can remove a lampstand long before a church closes its doors so that the activity goes on, but the Spirit is absent. John Stott, many churches today have ceased to truly exist. Their buildings remain intact their ministers minister, their congregations congregate, but their lampstand has been removed. The church is plunged into darkness. No glimmer of light radiates from it. It has no light because it has no love. Let us heed the warning before it's too late. Searching, isn't it? Jesus makes it clear that they must listen to this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, he's saying, take this to heart. Don't let it wash over you with no effect. There is a way to be an overcomer, and it's by being fully committed to the truth of the gospel as you love your brothers and sisters and those around you. We don't get to sort of pick a la carte from what God calls us to. Ask God to help us with this. And if you need some motivation other than the fact that he tells you, then listen to the promise that he gives us in verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a picture of eternal life. We live forever with the Lord. You, you, apparently, the temple of Diana, this great temple of Artemis, was, was said to be built on the the site of a pagan tree shrine. That was one of the things that often happened in the pagan world. There was a, a particular holy tree. It's, it's here in Irish paganism, the fairy thorn, you know. Well, there were these pagan tree shrines and, and the temple of Diana was built upon it. So the, the whole tree thing was very important in, in Ephesus and, and Diana was represented by a palm tree. And Jesus is saying, Overcome with me, and I'll give you something much better than the best of what the world can offer. Come my way. Give yourself to truth and to love. Repent as you fall short, because eternal life awaits. Eternal life awaits. So, Ephesus and the church as it can be, strong in truth, busy and active, lacking in love. But there's a way back. Remember, repent, do the things you did at first. Let's pray together. Lord of truth be told, we don't really like getting assessed because we always see things that we feel in, areas in which we fall short, things that we must strive for better. And we pray that tonight as we
Allow your word to search our hearts individually and together as a fellowship. You will cause the things from your word to stick in us that we might turn to you and have from you all the life and blessing that you have to give us individually and together. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.